This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. So today's episode was kind of one that just came about as I have been gathering my thoughts this month so far. So I'm recording this. Today is June 20th. So tomorrow is the first official day of summer. Yay. And so far up until like, so from June 1st to June 17th, it's been a busy month for me. I've had two funerals and four weddings thus far. I know June is a very popular month for weddings and that is proving to be true in my case. Although I think that's it for the weddings for me, but I don't, you know, go to a lot of weddings. I haven't, I guess, known a lot of people who have gotten married recently. So I haven't been to a lot of weddings, maybe throughout my lifespan. I've gone to more weddings than what I'm thinking of. Just more recent thoughts, but four weddings in June and then two funerals in June. And so I just wanted to talk in this episode about shared moments and the importance of shared moments. Now, I'm gonna start off with the easier one, which I think is weddings. You know, I think oftentimes it's easier if we're talking about weddings and funerals, probably most people would prefer to go to a wedding than they would to go to a funeral. But I think it's important when we're invited as guests to go to both. I mean, funerals don't necessarily send out invitations per se, you know, it's more if you know the person who lost a loved one or you know the person who passed away. Whereas, you know, weddings are a little bit more formal, send out an invitation. Maybe that has something to do with, you know, which one we prefer over the other one. But I think it's important to go, you know, these are events that are impactful in a person's life whether it's part of the wedding party, whether it's the family of the bride or the groom or the bride or the bride, however the um, orientation of the couple works out. They're fun events, right? They're celebratory. When you think about a wedding, you think of it more of a celebration and people are having fun and we're sharing food and dessert and sometimes drink. And, you know, we're just really kind of enjoying being there on behalf of the couple. Now, there's always going to be bumps along the way. You know, there's no such thing as the perfect day. Although, you know, if you're involved in planning a wedding, which I am currently, my first daughter will be getting married in September. So that's not daughter number one. It's just the first of the four daughters happens to be daughter number two, who is going to be getting married September 22nd. So we're, you know, still in the midst. We've got some wedding planning already done and we're still doing some wedding planning as I speak. And when you think about, you know, planning a wedding, you want to make it a celebration. You want to make it an enjoyable evening, a fun evening for the guests as well as, you know, for the bride and groom. And maybe you plan for the perfect day knowing that I don't know that perfect days actually exist. And there's going to be little hiccups along the way or on that day, there's going to be things that maybe regardless of how much planning we put into it, it's just not going to happen to the detail or to the meticulousness of which we planned it. And that's okay because it doesn't need to be perfect in order for it to be a wonderful and memorable day. I you know, want to talk for a minute about the guests and the role of the guests because I think as much as a wedding is about the two people getting married, a wedding really wouldn't be a wedding without the guests, right? If you think about a wedding with only two people there, now sometimes that happens and I know people who do that. Sometimes it's a smaller crowd, but usually there's some loved ones, some guests of the wedding who show up to celebrate with the couple. And I think that that's important. I think a wedding wouldn't be a wedding without the guests family, friends, hopefully many who you share a deep interrelational bond with and who are there to support you and to cheer you on. Now, for some people, depending on where you are in your life, 
at the time a wedding invitation comes, you may not be attending the event with the most positive or rose-colored glasses that you're looking through. You might actually just feel downright crappy about love or relationships or what you see as a lack of success. And if you feel that way, that's okay. Acknowledge it, hang out with it for however long you need to, get a massage, buy a great new dress, go on a run, do whatever you do to treat yourself and get yourself in a place where you can go and you can add the energy that you would like to for the couple that you're supporting and that you're there to cheer on. Once you're there, right, take that effort that was put into getting yourself in that place and try to be in the moment the best that you can be. You know, you may find when it's all over, you might go home feeling a lot better. You might have had a great evening, even if right now you're kind of negative about commitment, you're negative about men, you're negative about women, you're negative about whatever that is connected to weddings. Maybe you end up having a good time because you were just there in the moment. You were enjoying the music, you were enjoying the food, you were enjoying the company, you were enjoying the energy of the evening. And if that's hard for you to do and you still go and you still have a horrible time, you can still wake up the next day knowing that you tried, you did what you could to be able to show up with the energy that you wanted to and to try to be in the moment the best that you could. Now, a couple of months ago, I had a couple that I had worked with, mostly worked with him, but I had done myself a couple of, not a couple, I had done several, many, I don't know what the number is, joint sessions with both of them. And they got engaged a year ago, I think, maybe two, maybe a little over a year ago. And they were getting married a couple of months ago. And leading up to the wedding, they had some pretty big conflict emerge in their relationship. And it made them start to question, like, should we even be doing this? In fact, I think they were both maybe saying, we should not be doing this. And, you know, as I met with them and kind of talked through some things, I found myself, you know, kind of talking to them about the fact that like, just knowing the history of their relationship and saying, given both of your stories, given some of the ways that your individual stories have shown up in the relationship, which tends to happen, it's not necessarily a deal breaker, right? But given how it's shown up in your relationship in the past, but also the fact that you got to this place of being ready to commit to each other and to build a life together. I don't know that it's super surprising that we had conflict arise. Like you guys are doing something that probably has a lot of emotion around it, both positive and negative emotion. Probably a lot of anxiety, probably a lot of fear, also a lot of hope. Also a lot of like recognizing that you're about to do something that maybe you didn't think you deserved. Maybe you didn't think you'd ever meet somebody that you thought you could do this with. So the emotions that came up around this event, sure, it erupted in some high conflict. That's not super surprising, right? Like, I don't know that that made them feel a lot better when I, as the therapist, am saying, that's not super surprising. But I was saying like, look, when we're committing to each other, and they happen to be a little bit older than some of the normal, I don't know what the normal age couple is here in Utah. I think some of them tend to get married quite young. Even my daughter that's getting married, she's 24 and he's 26, 27, he's 27. And that tends to be a little bit on the older side of the continuum here in Utah. This couple is a good decade older than that. And so, you know, just talking to them about finding each other and getting to this place where you've planned the wedding you know, for the most part, everything was planned and in motion. And then this conflict happened. And I was talking to them about the fact that like, yeah, this leading up to it, not super surprising. What does it mean? I don't know. It's going to mean whatever you guys decide that it means. Now, after the conflict, it took a day, maybe a day and a half. They sat down. They were able to talk about it outside of a therapy session. And 
share with each other what was going on and what they felt about the other person and what they felt about this wedding that they had planned. And, you know, from how they showed up in my office, it seemed like they had some really meaningful and important conversations. And at the end of meeting together and talking, the two of them talking, they decided to go ahead with the plan and to go ahead with what they were committing to and that it didn't necessarily have to mean anything negative about their wedding, right? And I found myself, I can often relate with people who maybe are questioning if they have the ability to commit to somebody, if questioning if somebody else can actually commit to themselves, you know, growing up and into my dating and and even, you know, meeting my husband and stuff like that, I was quite, I would say, avoidant, relationship avoidant, and just didn't really think that was going to happen for me. It didn't make me sad. Like some, for some people, when they think that that's not going to happen for them, it makes them quite sad. It did not make me sad. I thought that was best for everybody who might have been involved otherwise if I was single. And I, you know, kind of had a plan for my life that did not involve me getting married or having kids or having a family that I created. And I was okay with that and thought, I'm still going to have a good life. And then that plan changed. And now I'm living this different plan. And that's also been good. And that's also been something for me that has brought about a lot of growth that I otherwise would not have had. But I can relate to questioning my ability to commit, another person's ability to commit. I can totally relate to that, right? And sometimes, like at this wedding that I went to this past weekend, you know, the videographer was kind of walking around asking different people for marriage advice for the new couple. And this is a family member, right? It was my nephew that got married. And so obviously as a family member, they kind of hit who family members were asking for different advice that you were going to give the couple. And the advice that I gave is, I think is really important to like each other. It's really nice on the days when we really love each other as well. But what gets us through the difficult days and the difficult moments is liking each other. And remembering that at the end of the day, I still like this person. So when I was talking with this couple and they were, you know, they both had hurt feelings about what the other person had said in the conflict. They both, you know, kind of minimized what they had said or what they had done in the conflict and focused more on the other person and what they had done or said in the conflict, which I totally understand. That happens a lot with couples that I work with. So that wasn't necessarily a big deal or surprising. I think we can minimize our role in things while the other person's role seems really big to us. And so that was what they were experiencing. And I found myself saying like, look, what do you guys each want your story to be? Because both of you have a story where it would totally make sense that you never get married, you never commit to another person, and this whole thing doesn't happen. Like, it would make sense given both of your stories. Obviously, I know his more than I know hers, but I know some of hers as I've met with them jointly. And I said, is, is that what you want for your story? Is that what you want for yourself? Or what about that storyline that says, you know, sure, I can mistrust people. I can see the world as a unfriendly place where things go wrong and bad things happen and you're better off on your own because relationships are a liability. Sure, we can look out at the world and we can find a plethora of examples for that storyline. And we might not even be able to find any number close to the other of moments where people make it, where moments where people show up for each other, moments where people maybe don't always love each other, but that light gets them through and they're able to rely on that commitment, rely on what they know of this other person and showing up for them. We might not have as many of those stories. I know when I was young, like I'm talking young, like older elementary school into junior high. By high school, I think I'd come to the conclusion of my data gathering. I, you know, had drawn my conclusion. But in, you know, probably starting fourth grade, 
where you're kind of aware of other things like that through, you know, maybe ninth or even 10th grade, I think. I would look for examples of marriages, right? I knew that I did not want what my parents had. And I knew that what my parents had very much impacted how I saw relationships. And so I might look at a neighbor and think, well, they seem like a really happy family and they seem like they have a good marriage. And then the next year they get divorced. You know, one time I was, I didn't necessarily know them all that well, but I ended up working in the husband's home office for his business. I worked for him for a while, basically doing data entry. And they weren't necessarily a couple that I had kind of scouted out to see and observe and kind of people watch to see what I could learn about relationships or about healthy relationships. But I remember I didn't necessarily think that they didn't have a healthy relationship. I thought that they did love each other and probably had a good relationship until, you know, like I said, I I worked in the home office and I heard things and I mostly heard things. I didn't see a lot of things, right? Because I was in this room, usually with the door closed. But I heard a lot of things and was like, on second thought, not a good relationship. And eventually, much, much later, they ended up getting divorced. And so there was a lot of, you know, different couples in my sphere that I would look at and pay attention to and notice. And You know, some didn't get divorced, but it wasn't necessarily a marriage that I was looking for or that I thought like would fit me. And like I said, by maybe my junior year in high school, I was kind of like, yeah, I just don't know that that happens. Right. In fact, my husband started out as one of my friends and I think maybe I kind of knew in the back of my mind that he wanted more than friendship. He will also say that he knew if he let on that he wanted more than friendship, that I would like cut him like a bad habit, right? That I would like toss him aside, which probably was true. And so he kind of hung out in the friend zone and was happy to hang out in the friend zone until, you know, at one point he kind of had a conversation with me and did let me know that he had more than just friendship feelings for me and was interested. If I was ever interested, that he would be interested in more than friendship. And I remember what I told him. I said, I can either be friends with you for the rest of my life or we can date each other for a while and then we'll end up hating each other. Like I would rather stay with the friendship. And of course to him, he's kind of like, okay, those are kind of two, I mean, Why does it have to be either of those, right? But in my mind, that was the conclusion I had come to. Either we weren't going to enter into the realm of more of a romantic relationship and we were going to keep it simply friends, or we would enter into that realm and we'd date each other. I don't know, maybe marry each other, but it would be short-lived. It was always going to have an end and that end was going to be bad and we would end up hating each other. Now, fortunately, I'm not that same person anymore. And I have learned and I've expanded. And one of the things that I've learned is life does not exist in binaries. But at that time, that was kind of my mindset. That was the conclusion I had drawn based on my plethora of research gathering, right? My evidence that I had gathered, my sample size, which really was not that big. But it seemed significant to me. So... You know, I I think there's things that we, as a guest, it's been a long time. It's been over 29 years since it was my wedding day. And I have to say, my wedding day did not go as it was planned. You know, my parents got in a really big fight the morning of my wedding. It ended with my dad getting in his car, as he often did, squealing out of the driveway and driving away. I had no idea if in his mind he was remembering that it was my wedding if he would know where it was, if he was going to actually show up. I Like, I had no idea, right? So my husband actually, I arranged with him, he was going to come pick me up and we were going to drive to where we were getting married together because I knew I did not want to drive with my parents or just one of my parents. And, you know, he's fine. I, he picks me up and he's like, how are you, right? And I'm like, ugh 
been an awful day so far at my house, which it had been, right? And I mean, it was March, so maybe not the, sometimes you can get a nice day here in Utah in March, but often not, right? It was, so I knew that when I, when I picked the date, but it was also, it's just kind of cold and very windy and just a lot of things about my wedding didn't go maybe the way I wanted them to, or, you know, I don't know that I had a whole lot of say in planning it. I was talking to my one sister at our nephew's wedding and she was talking about her wedding and I was talking about my wedding and she was saying, would you do a lot of things differently? And I was like, oh, I, I would do a lot of things differently. I said, but I mean, that would also mean that mom was different for me to be able to do things differently. Mom would need to be different. And she was kind of like, yeah, I agree. Like mom actually is the one who chose my wedding dress, which I don't think I knew, or at least I did not remember that. And I was like, mom chose your wedding dress. And she was like, yeah, she's like, I mean, I look back this is my younger sister. She's like, I look back at your wedding and she's like, I mean, I know that there was a lot of things you didn't push back on mom about, but you did push back on mom about some things. And she's like, I didn't. And she's like, I know mom felt bad about it. Even though mom was getting her way on a lot of things, I know mom felt bad about it. And she's like, and so I just didn't really push back on anything in my wedding. And I think I would say, I haven't had this conversation with my older sister, but you know, I was 17 when she was getting married. And so I was witnessing and watching and kind of was aware of the plans for her wedding. And I would say that mom kind of planned her wedding too, and that she didn't give mom much pushback. And, and maybe that's why I did give some pushback because I watched my sister and how that unfolded for her. And so I did give some pushback. It's also more of my personality than it is either of my sisters. So I don't know, but you know, that's one of the things that I have found with this daughter getting married is how much I want this to be about her and her fiance and their choices. And if they say, this is what we want, I'm like, I'll make that happen. I'll book it. I'll put the deposit down. I'll do this. I'll do that. But it's really not about me. And it's not really about my opinions. I want to be very respectful that this is about their opinions and their preferences and their likes. And so, I mean, so far it's going well. There hasn't been conflict. I can't think of any conflict thus far planning my daughter's wedding with her and her fiance, which just wasn't something that was that way in my family. There was always conflict when weddings were being planned. So I think, you know, recognizing that this is about them, this is about the happy couple, and it's about moments in life that are bigger than just life, right? I think, again, I was talking with one of my sister-in-laws and she was saying, you know, have you ever thought about renewing your wedding vows? We were talking at the wedding. She said, they've been married 20 years in October. And she's like, I mean, there's so much more that you would say in your wedding vows after they have four kids and 20 years. And, and you know, she's like, I think it, it can be really a beautiful thing to like recommit to each other when you have full knowledge about what life has looked like and saying, I choose you. I choose you again. And I was like, yeah, I love the idea of that. You know, and her, her younger son was there and he was like, you and dad are going to have another wedding? What are you talking about? Right. And she's like, no, not another wedding, but just, you know, kind of celebrating those moments, those good moments. And I think sometimes, you know, we see love, we see relationships in TV shows, in movies, but I don't know that we take time to really celebrate love other than like maybe on weddings. I think it's important to show up for the weddings and say, hey, I believe in these positive things and our ability to commit to each other, even though both people are imperfect and the day is imperfect and we're still committing to each other. I think that's just such a positive thing in our world. That's how I feel when I attend weddings is like, this is bigger than day in, day out life. Sure, hopefully this relationship fits into 
the day in, day out of life. But it's also bigger than that. And we don't want to lose sight of that. Now, let's talk for a minute about funerals. So, like I said at the beginning, I think more people would probably prefer to go to a wedding than they would a funeral. Although I I think I would imagine there's people out there who don't want to go to either. For their own reasons, I don't know what they are. I am not talking to them or doing any personal research on that. So I would imagine that there are people who, if given their preference, they just wouldn't show up to either. But I think there's also probably a bigger group of people who, if they had a preference, would pick wedding hands down to going to a funeral. Now, I myself don't love funerals. I I was going to say, I don't know people who love funerals, but I take that back. I have talked to people before who say, I love funerals. And I'm usually like, that is weird. But when I talk to them, I understand what they mean, having been to funerals myself and having, you know, lost both of my parents and people who were close to me. I do understand their sentiment. I still don't know that I would ever say that I love funerals. What I do love though, and I think Brene Brown says it best in her book, Braving the Wilderness. She says, funerals, in fact, are one of the most powerful examples of collective pain. They feature in a surprising finding from my research on trust. When I ask participants to identify three to five specific behaviors that their friends, family, and colleagues do that raise their level of trust with them, funerals always emerged in the top three responses. Funerals matter. Showing up to them matters. And funerals may not matter just to the people grieving, but to everyone who is there. The collective pain and sometimes joy or laughter we experience when gathering in any way to celebrate the end of a life is perhaps one of the most powerful experiences of inextricable connection. Death, loss, and grief are the great equalizers. Now, I I love that. She goes on to say, an experience of collective pain does not deliver us from grief or sadness. It is a ministry of presence. These moments remind us that we are not alone in our darkness and that our broken heart is connected to every heart that has known pain since the beginning of time. I think that was really powerful. And when I read that, and recently when I had somebody remind me about that, I felt the power of that. And I was like, right, funerals matter. And sure, they're hard to go to, right? It's hard to let ourselves experience sadness, grief, pain, and to experience that with other people who are also there. Or, you know, sometimes as a person who just attends the funeral, which that was the case. Actually, so this last Friday, I had a funeral of my cousin in the morning and then my nephew's wedding in the evening. So that was kind of a really packed day. But as I, you know, witnessed this cousin's siblings and step-siblings and witnessed them in their moments of pain and sadness and grief, it really, that just cuts me open, right? And it touches my pain and it touches my sadness and it touches my grief. And, you know, I'm not much of a crier, but I do cry at funerals. And this one was no different. You know, I remember when my dad died. So, you know, I've talked before on previous episodes about my dad's funeral. And so I'm not going to really get into the details of that again. But when my dad died, you know, I had some friends, two friends that I thought were really good friends. And it was something like nobody, nobody came to my dad's funeral that I knew, like outside of, you know, my siblings and my grandma was there. But my grandma had cut us off, right? When my parents divorced, which gosh, was decades before, when my parents divorced, my grandma, my dad's mom really just cut us off and we didn't really have contact with her. I sometimes, you know, when I had kids, I would send her an announcement of my baby's birth and a picture. I never heard back from her. You know, she just wasn't 
really a part of our life after that. I'm trying, I think, you know, my younger siblings' weddings, I think she might have come because if my, when my dad was alive, you know, my mom always made sure to include him on the announcement and to make sure he was invited, even though he didn't have a relationship with the child that was getting married or was, you know, putting nothing financially towards their wedding and had, you know, not paid any child support either after the divorce. My mama was made sure to include him. And so I, I'm guessing my grandma came, but I don't, I don't really recall conversations that I had with her or there's nothing that stands out about that. But I, I would guess if my dad came, then my grandma came with him. So I think at my dad's funeral, my grandma was there. I don't know his half brother, which was his only sibling, had already passed away. And I don't recall if my aunt, so his sister-in-law and their kids, I don't know if they were there. Maybe I would think that they were there, but I don't recall them speaking to us. And they also, right, when my grandma cut us off, like I never heard anything from them again and had no contact with them after that. And I think, you know, after the funeral, if I remember correctly, these two friends of mine, I think brought dinner to my family, to my immediate family. I think they brought us dinner, but nobody really talked to me about it, right? Nobody really acknowledged this death, right? Which at the time was kind of confusing to me. And I would try to make sense of it and say, well, I didn't really have a relationship like a typical dad and daughter, but in its own way, that makes it almost worse. I mean, I think it's really bad when you have a good relationship with your dad and they pass away, but it's just a really different kind of hard and sad when you never had that relationship with them and they pass away. And so I was kind of confused, right? About like people knew, people at my church knew, people in my neighborhood knew. Like I said, these two friends brought me dinner that once, but I believe that was really all that was done in reference to my dad's death. And I remember, you know, later that month, or it was the next month, I think, going to church and, you know, like, I think it was three other people at my church, their dads had passed away the same month that my dad passed away. And I heard from each of them how grateful they were for people in the church and their neighbors who showed up and sat with them and talked with them and brought a week's worth of meals and And I remember just being like, okay, that feels bad. Like, yeah, I didn't have the relationship that the three of these people talk about with their dad, but it wasn't about that, right? Like, I don't know. It just, it felt hard. Like everything with my dad, right? I was kind of like, and this also is hard and different and it just doesn't feel good. And it was a lesson to me that regardless of the person's relationship quality with a person, it's still important. Funerals still matter. They're still grieving and it matters if you show up. Now, you know, fast forward, I don't know how many years, maybe, uh, let me do the math real quick. I think my dad has been gone 11 years this August and my mom was gone seven years in December. So whatever the math is, However long my dad had died, three years later, I guess, three years later, no, four years later, when my mom passed away. And, you know, I posted about it on Facebook and people that I'm friends with on Facebook, right, but that I don't really have interaction with, people who went to elementary school with me, but like I don't really have a lot of contact with them and haven't since elementary school, they showed up. And they posted something on my timeline. And, you know, people who I had a better relationship with, but maybe have lost contact with or or didn't, just hadn't really, you know, kept in touch with them. They showed up. They showed up to the funeral. They showed up to the viewing. They showed up and posted something on my Facebook page. A nice memory about my mom or about me and my siblings. We got some notes in the mail, people sending us just heartfelt, thoughtful notes in that moment 
that really meant something to me as I was grieving the unexpected loss of my mom. And again, I, I had a better relationship with my mom than I did with my dad, but it was also a very complicated relationship with my mom and not one that I want my daughters to feel like they have with me. And I still, you know, recall how much it meant to me when people showed up, when people shared a story with me, when they asked me to share a story, like, what was your favorite memory of your mom? Tell me a little bit about her. Like people I didn't know, right? Or who didn't know my mom. I knew them, right? But they did not know my mom. You know, it affected my job, right? When my mom passed away, I was actually working that day and my husband interrupted a session and said like, we have to go to the hospital right now. And so, I mean, obviously that client knew something was happening that wasn't good. And I had to cancel uh, several appointments that day. And, you know, several of them reached back out saying, hey, I hope everything's okay. Some of them knew, like, I think this client heard my husband say something about my mom. He reached out and said, I hope your mom's okay. You know, and then you take some time off work because you can't really work and you've got things to do and you never get enough time off work when you're grieving. I felt like I probably needed the year off or six months off and I think I took two weeks off. And so, you know, I, I remember one of my clients who knew, right, I had canceled and he knew that my mom had passed away and at our next session he said, obviously he doesn't know my mom, right? And he just said, tell me something about your mom. And I was kind of like, oh, this is really uncomfortable. I'm not comfortable with my clients kind of showing up emotionally for me. I'm much more comfortable showing up for them. And I said, oh, you'll make me cry. And he said, that's okay. I know what it's like to lose your mom. And then he shared one of his stories about his mom, who I clearly had no idea who she was and never had met her. And I shared a story about my mom and we both kind of cried for a moment. And I felt like that was a really, actually it was kind of a powerful therapeutic moment. It made me super uncomfortable, but I felt like it was a powerful therapeutic connection that we had in that moment. You know, I I think too, I, I think about a time I was in grad school in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and we had come home for Christmas. My husband and I had flown home for Christmas And I think we had gone back to Louisiana and I found out that one of my good friends, one of my best friends from high school, and I was roommates with her in college, that her dad had passed away unexpectedly. And, you know, I said to my husband, like, I know, like, we're poor college students, right? I'm like, I know we just flew home, but like, I got to go home. Like, I got to go I got to go to this for her. Right. And he was like, yeah, no, of course you do. So I flew back out and our other really good friend, um, I had let her know that I was going to come home and, and actually I got a flight out right away. And so I think it was like the day after we found out, or maybe two days after we found out really soon after we found out. And we had both like spoke to her on the phone, I believe, but we were going to her house. Right. And so she really likes diet Cokes. We had bought a 12 pack of diet Coke We knew her whole family really liked Diet Coke and we were going to her mom's house where we knew the family would be. And we were driving in the car. I picked my other friend up and we were driving in the car and she was like, I'm so glad that you came home and that I can go with you because you know what you're going to say. And it wasn't until that moment, like just kind of the flurry of getting back home for this friend, I was like, Oh, I don't know what I'm going to say. And she was like, yeah, but you're going to school to be a therapist. Don't you know what to say? And I was like, no. And at this point we're like standing on the front door. We had knocked, right? We're holding a 12 pack of diet Coke. And my friend answered the door and I just said, I'm just so sorry. Like, because I think often words are insufficient for the moment. And what they need in that moment is connection, right? Connecting heart to heart is far more valuable than any words we could ever say. And, you know, they all appreciated the Diet Coke. But I think just that connection, even minus the Diet Coke, was really what was appreciated in that moment. 
because it's not, and I, I certainly felt that with both of my parents' deaths, right? But particularly more of my mom's because more people showed up in those moments than with my dad. Nobody really showed up in those moments. And I even think as siblings, you know, so often we talk about how siblings in the same family often experience trauma individually or they experience trauma in isolation. And that is true. I think that's true for my family. And so we kind of got through my dad's funeral and then we just didn't talk about it. We didn't talk about it while we were getting through it. It was kind of just head down, do what needs to be done, get through it. And then we didn't talk about it. We talked about it. The next time we talked about it was planning my mom's funeral. And we didn't, again, talk about it a lot. Now, you know, when my mom had been gone for five years, we decided that it's, it was important, like we would get together as siblings and grandkids every year on her death anniversary. But often we, we didn't talk about her and we didn't talk about why we were together that day. Um, and five years in, we decided that maybe we should start making it more of a collective grief process instead of just the individual grief process. And so since then, the last two years, we have you know, we have a tradition and a ritual that we do um, on my mom's death anniversary. And we talk about her and we talk about our childhood and we talk about the good things about her and we talk about the not so great things about her. And we just share memories about her together as a group. We, we don't do that about my dad. We don't. And, and when we're talking about our mom, my dad doesn't really come up. I think we're still, we still experience that in isolation and and so you know even though we were I think we were all there for his funeral yeah I think I had like three siblings living out of state at that time but we were all there for my dad's funeral but we were not there for each other it was like just get through this but at my mom's funeral that's when I realized that it really is not about what people say it's about being present and it's about reminding this person who's in the depths of grief right then that they're not alone. And, you know, I kind of, I guess, have an example of that with my dad's death where I did feel alone. I mean, my husband was there for me and I mean, my kids were young. And so I think they, you know, they kind of tried to be there for me, but they didn't know my dad. I think they met him less than five times. And for the most part, I felt alone in that. Whereas with my mom, I was reminded that I was loved and that I wasn't alone. I think, you know, in order for us to be whole as human beings, we have to learn how to explore these unpopular emotions and to integrate our shadow side. So I've talked before about our shadow self, right? It's the parts of ourselves that we'd rather not look at but actually play a pretty important vital role in who we are as a person. And this, uh, this uh, concept of the shadow side or the shadow self was really brought about by psychologist Carl Jung. And he wrote about it throughout his lifetime. And he believed that our true strengths resided in our shadow side. And until we could learn to examine and embrace our shadows, we would not be living as our best or whole self. You know, he also talked about how when we ignore or deny or try to extinguish that shadow side, the darker and more dangerous or more reckless that shadow side can become. And so when I think about how this relates to grief, I think when people are not allowed to grieve or experience negative emotions, right? we're actually denying them an opportunity to express these deeper feelings. And I think because we live in a society that values positivity at all costs, people often feel shame for experiencing these unpopular emotions, sadness, grief, loss, despair, or they feel guilt for not moving through them quickly enough. Now, I think, you know, we know that there is a myth but the myth remains that healthy people, right, should feel 100% whole 
with or without a romantic partner or with or without the approval of others or the support of a family or community. Certainly that is something I believed when I was planning my life and there was gonna be nobody but me in it. I certainly believe that myth. And that social connection, right, was just kind of a bonus, but it wasn't really an essential component to our well-being. It was more of a supplement, right, not a staple. Well, the truth is that no one is complete without other people. Just like the wedding is not a wedding without guests. Nobody is complete without other people. And to be complete without social connection is like being nourished without food. It just, it doesn't happen. We get hungry just like we get lonely. We must feed ourselves food or we die. We also need connection in all of its forms. And I think it's also true, and it can both be true, right? That the lifelong development of autonomy, the ability to kind of be independent and do things for ourselves and take care of ourselves, I think that is as innate to human nature as this drive for connection. I don't think that they cancel each other out or again, that it's a binary, it's either or. Either we're autonomous or we need connection. I think it's a both and. We need both connection and autonomy. And human beings are built to oscillate from connection to autonomy and back again. And I think that pain and discomfort offer us a space to be held by others and to grow into our highest self. You know, I, I might've shared this on the podcast before. I know I've shared this with clients before. You know, in, in my family growing up, touch tended to happen in violent ways. We weren't a, an affectionate family, physically affectionate. We didn't really hug or say, I love you, but we did know physical abuse. And I think for me, it kind of made me touch adverse, averse, right? Because touch just was not a safe thing to happen. Um, I had definitely, I had some dates who picked up on it and maybe asked about that. And then, you know, we just stopped dating rather than have a conversation. That's where Jackie was in her younger years. And I worked on it. And, you know, this friend whose dad died when I was in my master's program and the other one that I went with, they, in college, when I lived with them, they helped me work on that. They pointed that out to me. My husband certainly kind of helped point that out to me and pointed it out in a way that, you know, I could kind of carve out an exception for him, like touch could be safe with him. It certainly didn't, you know, flip the whole storyline and make touch safe. And it's just been something I've had to work on throughout my life. Kids certainly added to, to helping me to work on that because, I mean, young kids, they're touching you all the time, right? Sometimes you're like, okay, I am touch overwhelmed. Like that was way too much touch. But you know, my, my kids still, they're all adults, young adults, right? But they're all adults. And when they come to the house or they leave, they give me a hug. I give them a hug. Like it, that's just not something that has ended for them at a certain age. And I put most of that credit on them a little bit on me for not reacting negatively to that, to them doing that. And, you know, I, I recall at my mom's viewing and funeral, that whole process, right? I got a lot of hugs. I got a lot of hugs in that, I don't know, week, I would say. And one night my husband and I are laying in bed and he said, so how are you doing with all of this physical affection and hugging and touching that you've been getting? And I said, actually good. Like, I think I like it. And I mean, I got hugs from people who knew my mom, but I didn't know, right? So it wasn't just all people that I knew or people that I had close relationships with that were hugging me. But I said, I, I kind of feel like I've been parched, like this desert when it comes to physical affection. And I just felt like I was just drinking it in and it it felt so good. So again, that, that ability to heal, that it was healing to me. Touch was very healing to me. And I didn't 
know that. I mean, I knew that with certain people, but I didn't know that generally until that experience. And it was my pain and discomfort and their shared pain, that collective pain that made that safe and made me kind of lock that new belief into place and lock that new experience into place. Now, if you've seen the Pixar movie Inside Out, it's about the five main emotions of a 12-year-old, right? Anger, disgust, fear, joy, and sadness. And Joy is the main character. She's the dominating emotion. And she wants to be everything to be positive all the time. But sadness, as sadness starts to creep into the picture more and more, you know, initially Joy's kind of trying to push sadness out of the way because who wants like sadness with all of her energy to show up, right? Who wouldn't want Joy and who wouldn't want to pick Joy? Which is kind of what I was talking about at the beginning, right? Where we would pick a a wedding celebration over a funeral experience. But there's this part in the movie, there's this scene in the movie where the young 12-year-old girl is remembering this situation at one of her softball games and where she got hurt and started to cry. And what the show depicts at that point, right, is kind of like, in my wording, like, Sadness was the bat signal. Sadness is what called out and said, I need people. I need people to show up for me. And that sadness really bonds us as human beings. Now, Brene Brown talks about our current society and what's happening, and she calls it a spiritual disconnect. She says, we can blame social media transient communities or divisive politics. But at the root of this universal loneliness, she says, is a lack of authentic connection. Now, I I want to remind you at the end of this episode that connection is why we're here. And connection also helps us be more autonomous. It helps us be more of ourselves and to stand on our own two feet. Connection is why we're here. It is what gives meaning and it is what gives purpose to our lives. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The prayer of the perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.